0: Second Timothy chapter four. We've been studying together the book of Hebrews, of course. And the last thing that we studied in the book of Hebrews was the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ, after His death upon the cross and His resurrection from the dead, He ascended unto heaven, where He seated Himself at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Amen. We talked about that at length and we talked about the implications of that, that according to the words of Christ in Acts chapter one, the Christian should be expecting the power of the person of the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. We should be expecting that. We should be relying upon the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. That should be a reality for every single Christian. It shouldn't be a cerebral thing or just a doctrinal thing. It should be a very practical daily thing, the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. But then you also remember another doctrine by way of implication was after Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, immediately as the disciples were watching him go up, the two angels said, what are you doing staring into heaven? In the same way that he went, he will come again. So we have there the doctrine of the second coming that Jesus is coming again. Now, this is something that you can be absolutely sure about. And this must have a profound effect on the way that the church lives. Because of the fact that Jesus is coming again, the Christian must find themselves in a posture of waiting, waiting for the Lord, waiting for his return. Hearts set upon that day. Titus calls it the blessed hope. The thing that we hope and we look forward to, we're sure of it, He's coming again, and it must affect the way that we live. But then we also learn that there's a simultaneous posture of the Christian. The Christian is not only to be waiting for the return of the Lord, but the Christian is to be running for the glory of God. Amen? So there is this dual posture in the Christian life, waiting for the Lord's return, running for the Lord's glory. And I'm going to ask us a question that I asked us last week. Last week I I just I tried to get us to think. What had changed in our lives since the previous week? Because in the previous week we heard the fact that the Lord is coming again. And if that doesn't affect the way that we live, there's a disconnect. If that doesn't affect the way that we do relationships, If that doesn't affect the way that we do finances, if that doesn't affect the way that we do priorities, if that doesn't affect the way we do family, the way we approach our job and our recreation and everything else, then there's a disconnect in the Christian life. Something has gone awry. Something needs to be examined and brought back into line with the Spirit of God. You cannot look at a fact in the Bible like Jesus is coming again and just do nothing with that and call yourself a Christian. We're obligated to respond to that truth. And then last week, we said we're not only waiting, but we're running. We talked about the fact that there's a course set before us, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Run the race, right? Run with endurance, the race that is set before us. What does it mean if there's a race set before us, except for that there's a course? And of course, it is marked out. Clearly delineated for us. And so we talked about the fact that God has set a course, a ministerial course for each one of us. That everybody has a ministry. Everybody has a calling upon their lives. Everybody's gifted for ministry we talked about last week. Everybody's ministry is going to look different, we discussed. But everybody's ministry is necessary. And everybody will stand before the Lord on that day and give account according to their faithfulness with the opportunities given them, the abilities, the finances, the sphere of influence. We will answer for those things according to how we run for God's glory. And we talked about the fact that we've got to run with endurance, that the Christian life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. Now I want to ask us again for the second week. What has changed in our lives? You heard the unadulterated, the 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 absolute word of God. That he has a course marked out for you to redeem the daily mundane tasks of your life. To redeem your activity. To make it count for eternity. What's changed in your approach since last week? Hey, if nothing's changed, we're in trouble as a church. I don't mean that week to week you have to have these huge, earth-shaking, monumental changes. It's incremental, the Christian life is. Sometimes there's those huge changes, like Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. Bam! Big change. But then there's Paul's years in Arabia. Years in seclusion, just learning incrementally. Has there been, is there happening in our lives an incremental change? Because people, if it's not happening, then we're playing games then we've bought into something called churchianity. We're playing church. We've abandoned Christianity. Being transformed into the image of Christ. And here's my vote. We don't vote at this church. It's an absolute dictatorship. But if we did, here would be my vote. Just kidding. My vote is, if we get to that place as a church where nothing's changing in our individual lives and we stop responding to the word of God, let's shut the thing down. I'd rather go surfing, honestly. I mean, I really honestly would rather go surfing than come play church with one another than to just hear sermons. The book of Hebrews has been so incredibly rich. Unbelievable truths brought forth in the book of Hebrews. What's happening in our lives? Because the Christian life has got to be marked by growth. Because the moment you commit to Christianity, it's like jumping in a fast moving stream. If you don't endeavor to swim upstream, you'll go with the flow of it. You'll find yourself sliding downstream. The moment you commit to Christianity, you will find that the stream and the flow of this world is contrary to who you are in Christ now. And so you've got to endeavor to swim upstream. And if you don't, you'll find yourself going with the flow of the world. And so the Christian life demands that there are decisions, that action is taken. We can't, nor are we called to change ourselves. That's the job of the person of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. But we are called to make decisions and to respond in obedience. We must make decisions. We must take action because the Christian life is one of growth. Lord, we just pray now that you would help us with these things these things that we've already discussed and the things that we're going to discuss today, we want to be doers of your word. And Lord, we just want to confess now, before we even come to your word, we want to confess that we are selfish people, that we're self-absorbed, that we're egocentric, that we're myopic in our view, that we just, we try to get the whole world to evolve around us. And Lord, forgive us for this, but we've kind of sort of made Christianity about ourselves. And that's just wrong. And so we ask that you'd have mercy on us, Lord. That you'd make us a people who are a walking in resurrection power. A people who realize the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Who have actuated all the benefits of the cross into our lives by grace. Lord, make us such people. Please, God, save us from apathy. Save us from churchianity. Breathe life, continual life into us as a gathering, as a group, as the ecclesia, the called out ones, as a family. Lord, do this. Don't let us go with the flow of the world. Don't let us settle into a lukewarm state. Breathe life into us, Lord. Transform us into the image of Christ. From glory to glory, take us. Minister to us now through your word, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the dual posture then, in light of the ascension of Jesus Christ, of waiting and running, both of those must be a reality to have authentic Christianity. Both of those have to be a reality for authentic Christianity to take place. There is no historic Christianity. There was no initial Christianity without the sure hope of His coming and the hard running for His glory. If you don't have those dual stances functioning in your life, then you have a distorted, truncated, incomplete, non-biblical thing. Not rightly called Christianity. And what we see in the scriptures is that our waiting and our running are connected. In Matthew 24, you read it in your one year Bible reading just a few days ago. In Matthew 24, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked for a private briefing on when the last days would happen, on when his coming would take place. And he sat down on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and he gave them a private briefing, told them when it would be and what it would be like. First thing he said to them is, see to it that nobody deceives you, letting us know that the last days would be full of deception. And then he connected in their hearts and their minds once and for all, they're waiting for his return with their running for his glory. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom, what gospel? The humanity blew it. And Jesus came to set it right. That humanity was in error, in sin, in rebellion, and owed a debt to God. And that Jesus came to pay the price on the cross, paid that price, rose from the dead three days later, thereby conquering sin, death, and the devil, and ascended unto the Father, and is seated in the right hand of majesty on high. That gospel. That one. Not any other one. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. There is in some way, and I confess to you, I don't have all the details of it worked out. I don't have all the eschatological details and nuances and timing of it worked out. But somehow there is a connection between the Lord's coming and our participation in his mission. Remember last week, we talked about the fact that he invites us into his mission. You read it in your one year Bible reading today, that we are to be making disciples, the great commission. What does it mean that he came to earth, except that he left heaven? If he left heaven to go somewhere, that means he was on a mission. Wherever he went was where the mission was. Where did he go? He went from heaven to earth. That means that God came to earth on a mission. But he also ascended. He went back to heaven. What does that mean? We discovered last week that it does not mean the end of the mission. It does not mean a closing of the curtain. It does not mean a final act. Rather, it means the dawning of a new age. It's the time of mission for the church. It's a brand new, distinct, limited time period in which there is opportunity, if not seized upon, that opportunity is gone once and for all. He invited us into his mission. We are to concern ourselves with the mission of God. And somehow our running according to that mission of making disciples and our waiting for his return are connected. Now, here's the problem. There's people in the world who have not heard about Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers. There are whole people groups that don't have any of the Bible translated into their language. There are still unreached, untouched people and places for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who will go? Who's going to go and commit themselves to learn the language, to translate the word of God? Who's going to go and commit themselves to learn the culture and the nuances thereof and the people to communicate the gospel in a meaningful way? But it's not just tribes somewhere they haven't heard You see, there's people that live right next door to me and right next door to you that have never heard the gospel. Do not you dare think that because they live in America, they know the gospel. There are people that do not know the gospel. God has invited us into mission. Now in 2 Timothy here, we have the apostle Paul writing to his protege, Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. Paul was his mentor. And Paul here, in 2 Timothy, is at the end of his life. Call to mind that Paul always expected to see the return of Jesus in his lifetime. He always did. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the sky, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Paul always expected to see the coming of the Lord in his life. Was he wrong? No. That is exactly the expectation that every Christian generation is supposed to live in. Jesus said, live that way. You know, not the day nor the hour. He lived rightly in that he was expecting the Lord in his lifetime. But now, as we see him writing second Timothy, the Lord has revealed to him that he's actually going to pass away, that he's going to die before the coming of the Lord. And so what we have here are the final words of a very passionate man, an old passionate man to a young man that he expected would carry on the ministry, the work of Jesus Christ. And you've got to know that the Apostle Paul was an incredibly passionate person. If you don't know that, you haven't read the Pauline epistles, the epistles of Paul, very carefully. He is a passionate, fiery man. I mean, this is one who was so zealous for his religion of Judaism that he committed himself to killing Christians. And when his mentor, Gamaliel, said, you know what, Paul, don't worry about it. If it's from the Lord, then it's going to be blessed. If it's not from the Lord, it'll pass away. Paul said, that is not a good enough answer. And so Paul went to the high priest and got letters from the high priest to go to Damascus and slaughter Christians. This was a passionate man. Passionate for what he believed in. But on the road to Damascus, God knocked him off his horse. Changed his world in an instant. He took the same passionate man. Now notice, Jesus didn't throw away that passion. He didn't discount that passion. He he didn't call that passion to be subsumed into something else. Rather, that passion was harnessed for something new. That passion was harnessed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see that same passion now, harnessed and sanctified, heading into the world, instead of taking life and parting life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. An incredibly passionate, focused man in Paul. And now he's on his deathbed. And he's speaking to his protege. And all the man lived for was to see people come to Jesus Christ. So he's going to say his final words to the one that would carry on the ministry. It's a solemn moment. And it says in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, I solemnly charge you. I solemnly charge you. It means to put under oath. It's almost like he's putting Timothy in court right now. Timothy, I solemnly charge you. I'm putting you under oath. To follow through on this thing. And then he calls a witness. He says, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. This is heavy. He's at the end of his life and he says, Timothy, I am charging you. I am putting you under oath in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. And then he reveals the credentials of his witness. Who is the judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing and by his kingdom. Okay, what we have in verse 1 is a very gnarly charge. If you could put yourself in the shoes of Timothy when he opened up this letter, I guarantee you that every hair on his body stood up when he read this charge. So what happens next is of the utmost importance. What this passionate apostle has to say with his dying breath is of the utmost importance for you and I today as it was for Timothy then. And so he says then in verse two, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Notice what he says to Timothy and to you and I. That the Christian is to preach the word. The Christian is to be in this world reproving, rebuking and exhorting with great patience and instruction. With patience we are to communicate the truth of God. We're to teach the truth of God. It doesn't say that we're to make friends with the world. It doesn't say that we're to make the message palatable to the world. It doesn't say that we're to politicize the church or to become politically correct. Nay, rather, he says, Timothy, make sure that you are biblically correct. Preach the word. And when needed, needed, reprove people. Rebuke people. Exhort people with great patience and instruction. He says that Timothy is to preach the word. Now, strip away the connotations that you may have of preaching. You probably have connotations of me or someone else that you listen to yell for an hour, or something like that. That is not necessarily what it means here. The word in Greek is keruso. It simply means to be a herald. To dispatch the office of a herald to make proclamation, to proclaim, to announce publicly, to make public announcements. Understand, please, that the Christian is to make public announcements of the Word of God. Preach, Russo. strip away the connotations. You may never have a stage and you don't have to yell. I don't know why I do. You don't have to do this. But you are obligated as a Christian to publicly announce the word. Preach the word. It says preach the word and nothing else. Paul said when he went to Corinth, I endeavored to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And the call in our lives is to communicate the truth of who God is through the word of God. That's what we're to proclaim. Those are the public announcements that we're supposed to make. The problem is, is the society is so used to hearing what the church is against that nobody's really sure what we're for. And when we preach the word and the gospel, then all the other stuff will come forth from that, but that's got to be the foundation. And then from that comes social justice and issues thereof. From that comes issues pertaining to the right of life. From that comes issues that that will interact with politics and the world stage. But those are the foundation. That's not what we proclaim. That's not what we're called to herald. That's not the public announcement that we're called to make. We are called to preach the word. Every one of us. And we are called to be ready to do so in season and out of season. That means at any time. The Christian is to be alert. Christianity is to be alert living. We are called disciples of Jesus Christ. Inherent in the word disciple is, called, is a concept, discipline. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to have to endeavor to be disciplined. This says it throughout the Bible. What about a very potent one, 1 Peter 5 8. Be sober, be alert. The adversary, your devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So the Christian life is one of being sober, one of being alert, one of being ready, one of being ready, being ready at any moment to communicate by word or by deed, the love and the person of Jesus Christ, the grace and the mercy of the God of the Bible to the people within your sphere of influence. We've got to be ready at any moment. I don't know how to do that other than to cultivate a prayer life. I don't know how to do that other than to join myself to other people who are praying corporately on a regular basis. I don't know how to do that other than getting alone with Jesus every single day before the sun comes up. I don't know how to do that other than opening up the Word of God and feasting on the Word of God. Otherwise, I find myself not ready. Here's what you'll discover. If you you answer the invitation to be involved in the mission of God, you'll find that He's already working in the world around you. You see, we sometimes have a false perception. We get a job at Starbucks and we're like, okay, I'm going to bring Jesus to Starbucks. I'm bringing the Lord in there and I'm going to do do this and that and I'm going to bring the ministry in there and I'm going to so on and so forth. But, But if you'll actually heed his call to be ready in season and out of season, to run the course, to engage in his mission, there will come a moment where you find that he's already there. He's already working. We don't bring the ministry. He dictates the ministry. He's already at work in the world around you. And so then when you you step out to serve Him, you discover that. And you say, wait a minute, God's already at work here. Oh, I thought I was bringing Jesus to start, but He's already here. He's already working in His life and in her life. And then you step into what is called a partnership. What Paul called in First Corinthians chapter 3, that we are fellow workers with God, fellow workers with God. And you see what that means, the fact that God is already there and working and that he's invited us into that through the Great Commission, is that we don't have to ask people's permission to talk to them about Jesus. It's become very popular, you know, you got to earn the right and this and that and the other. And I, stand, I understand some of the components of that, but listen to me. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He invited us into the lives of those around us when he issued the great commission, the wonderful invitation. When he said to go and make disciples, he, the one who created those people, he invited us to speak about him into their lives. Are you alive? If you wait for an invitation, it may never come. Don't be obnoxious. Simply be proactive. God has already invited you into their lives. In fact, he's put you in their lives because he's working in their lives. He's already moving. And he invites you into that partnership to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, to preach the word of God to be ready all the time. Now look at verses three and four. Paul says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves, for themselves, teachers in accordance to their own desires, to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. There has never been a more apt description of today. They don't want to hear the truth, they will accumulate teachers for themselves according to their own desires. I don't want to hear that. This is what I want to hear. And so they will accumulate teachers unto themselves. It happens within the church and without the church. But within the church, it is rampant. People flocking to churches that will not tell them the whole counsel of God, but rather what they want to hear. It's called living in the last days. The day is characterized by Deception. Notice what he said would happen in the days in which we live. People will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. What a perfect description of today. Every time a myth comes along, it's a blockbuster. The Da Vinci Code. It is a stinking myth. And it is wildly popular. They refuse and reject the truth of Jesus Christ and they turn aside to myths. And we live in a culture that is enamored with cute little myths and stories. We're living in those days right now. And so in the next verse now, Paul's going to tell Timothy and you and I how to respond. He says, but you, but you, in other words, you are to be contrary to the flow of the world. You're to be contrary to the nature of the culture. You've got to be in it. You've got to interact with it. You are part of the culture, but you have a different role. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, be sober in all things, be clear, be focused on the person of Jesus Christ, be walking in the spirit, be alert as a Christian. And then it says endure hardship. I am sorry. The more serious you get about Christianity, the more hardships you're going to experience in a certain way. Jesus said, if somebody wants to follow after me, they got to deny themselves and pick up the cross. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. He said, we've got to run with endurance, a race that is set before us. Notice it says, the last phrase there, fulfill your ministry. As we spoke about last week, every single one of us has a ministry. It's a course, according to Ephesians 2.10 and Hebrews 12.1 and 2. Run with endurance, the course set before you. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand. So he prepared the good works. He set them up in a course and inherent in that course is obstacles. He builds into that course that we are to run the calling on our lives. He builds obstacles into it that he might build character into us. And so we've got to, as it says here, endure hardship. That is not flake out, not cheese out, not give up, not get overwhelmed, not panic, not freak out, but endure. 1 Corinthians 10:13 comes to mind. No temptation or trial could be translated either way in the Greek. No temptation or trial has overcome you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way out also. He will always bring you through it. He will always bring you through it. He will never give his child more than they could bear by his grace and the empowering of his Holy Spirit. And then notice what it says. Not only fulfill your ministry, which is a call on our lives, but do the work of an evangelist. We can speculate by the phraseology of Paul that Tim was not a gifted evangelist. Evangelism wasn't his gifting, but he was still called to do the work of an evangelist. Now we have in the body of Christ, universal and in this body of Christ, gifted evangelists, people who, wow, they they can just seem like they'll go up to anybody on the street and communicate the gospel in the most profound way. And I'm always wonderfully godly, like jealous of that. That's so cool. Not everybody's gifted that way, but everyone is called to do the work of an evangelist. Every Christian is called to communicate the gospel. I will never let you out of that because it's the word of God. Every Christian is called to communicate the gospel. It happens in the way we live, the things we do and definitely what we say because hearing comes by faith and hearing by the word of Christ. Every Christian is called to do the work of an evangelist to one degree or another. Now look what he says here in verse six. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He knows that he's going to die soon. So he says in verse seven, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. There is Paul's testimony. Paul is able to say at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. Notice he says there was a course. There is a course marked out for you. Good works prepared beforehand. Run the race with endurance. He was able to say at the end of his life, I finish my course. My course will never look like your course and your course won't look like my course and I don't need to concern myself with your course. The testimony on the deathbed is, I finished my course. Now what will our testimonies be? What will your testimony be? If your deathbed is tomorrow... Will you be able to say on it, by the grace of God, I finished the course. The things that the Lord set out for me, the way that he wanted to redeem the everyday activity of my life, I finished the course. I fought the good fight. I kept the faith. Paul says, I kept the faith. I didn't let it go. I didn't fall away from it. I didn't walk away. I didn't slide downstream. I kept the faith. I fought the fight because it is a fight. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. I fought the fight. I finished my course. I finished my course. What will your testimony be on your deathbed? Will you be able to say, I finished the course? It's not too late. You say, you might not be able to say it tomorrow, but tomorrow's a good day to start working on it then. It's never too late. I want to say that on my deathbed. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I I never left the faith by the grace of God. You see, but there it is. It's the grace of God. All ministry is God's ministry. All ministry is given by grace. And all hard work is according to the grace of God. Paul said to the church in Corinth, I work harder than any other apostle, and yet not I, but the grace of God in me. All ministry is God's ministry. All ministry is given by grace. All hard work in the ministry is by the supply of the grace of God and the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Called into partnership. But I want to say on my death, but I walked that course with the Holy Spirit. I received that grace in the ministry. I finished the course. What is your course? Are you on it? Are you running? And then in verse 8, it connects for us wonderfully the theme of the last couple weeks. In verse eight, we have the connectivity of waiting on the Lord, running for the Lord and receiving rewards from the Lord. Verse eight, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you see the connection of the whole package in the last couple of weeks? There we have a connection of waiting on the Lord running for the Lord and receiving the reward from the Lord as we spoke about last week. Paul knew that there was a crown of righteousness laid up for him that he would receive at the judgment seat of Christ. Talked about last week, we'll all stand before him and answer for our faithfulness that we exercise with the gifts, talents, resources, sphere of influence. Paul's expecting the crown of righteousness, one of several crowns mentioned in the New Testament that are some of the rewards that we will receive on that day. But he said it wasn't only for him but for all who love the appearing of the Lord. Now being confronted with the word of God, we must ask ourselves a question then. Do you love the appearing of the Lord? It's talking about his coming again. Is that something that inspires adoration in your heart? Is that something that gets you excited in your heart? Is that something that makes you run and wait and go, if not, there's a disconnect in your Christianity your heart's gotten tangled around something else. You're not, you, 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 you're not horrible, you're human. But if you don't love the appearing of the Lord, if you're not fervently looking forward to His coming again, then your heart's gotten around something else. There's something on this earth where your treasure is. There's something on this earth that you've overconnected yourself to, that you've lost sight of the heavenlies and the one who is coming from the heavenlies to take us to that place. And you see, that's got to be repented of. There must be, biblically speaking, in the Christian, the sense of, I love the fact that the Lord is coming again for us. It's so right. And in fact, there's a reward for all those who love His appearing. Why? Because the way that we wait affects the way that we run. The way that we wait on the Lord and the attitude that we have in waiting for His coming again will always affect the way that we run for His glory. Now, Paul ran hard for his glory. In fact, notice what he said in verse 6. He said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. What does that mean? Paul said, My life is like a drink offering to the Lord. It's something that's just poured out on the altar of sacrifice. Now, you guys know, because we're reading through Leviticus together right now in our one year Bible, <laughs> there's a whole lot of sacrifice taking place, right? One of the sacrifices spoken of in the Old Testament is called a libation. A libation. It means a sacrifice of a liquid substance. And in the, Testament, in the uh, context of the Old Testament and Yahweh, it was wine that was poured out. There would be a sacrifice of a lamb and there would be an ephath of flour, so on and so forth. But then wine representing the harvest and the fruit would be poured out as a sacrifice unto the Lord. A libation. Liquid offering. Paul says, my life is such that it's just being poured out on the altar of service to the Lord. It's a sacrifice of service unto him. But wait a minute, back up now. In the Old Testament, anytime that they poured out that wine, something, something had to have preceded that. Before the grapes could be poured out as wine, they had to be crushed. Before Paul could be poured out on the altar of service to Jesus Christ, there had to come a crushing of himself. Before you and I can be poured out as a libation, a drink offering to the Lord in sacrificial service. There's got to come a crushing. And what does a crushing consist of? The crushing is that which comes against our wills by the agent of the Holy Spirit. The portion of our wills that is contrary to the work of God and the way of God and the will of God. Come on, we know we have it. And if we're going to be poured out on the altar of sacrifice to the Lord, if we're going to have a full redemption of our daily activity, then there's got to come a crushing into our lives. Jesus experienced this crushing in the battle of the wills in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. In the Hebrew, it's Gat Gatshamanim. Olive press, Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press. Why? Well, there was olive trees there. And it was in that place that Israel would press down olives. Now, olives were cool and fine and everything in their unpressed state. But it wasn't until they were pressed and crushed that olives realized their full potential given by God. You see, within that olive was oil. And that oil was used to anoint the high priest. That oil was used to anoint a king. That oil was used to anoint the tabernacle and the implements used in the worship structure of the tabernacle. That oil was used as oil that was burned for light to light up the worship structure and the world of Israel. You see, invested by God in that olive was something of incredible usefulness and value, but it was never discovered until a crushing came. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of the olive press, prayed three times. God, if there's any other way to save humanity, let's do it. If there is any other way or will by which men can be saved, let's do that. And then, in the battle of the wills, He acquiesced. He submitted. He obeyed. He said, nevertheless, thy will be done. And the battle of the wills was won in the place of the crushing once and for all for you and I. What does it say? It says that Jesus was praying fervently and he sweat great drops of blood. An actual physical condition called hematidrosis. Hema meaning blood, drosis, water, tie ties it together, I guess. Hematidrosis. In the place of crushing... He sweat actual blood under the reality of the weight of the cross. There must come in our lives the crushing. The submitting. The surrendering. The subsuming of our will into the will of God. And where the battle is waged is in the minutia of the day. There was the big Garden of Gethsemane experience for Christ where the battle is won. But for you and I, it's in the minutia of the day where we've got to say, nevertheless, Father, thy will be done. Because our will asserts itself. But if we're ever going to be poured out as a drink offering, if the full redemption of the activity of our lives is going to come, there must come a crushing to you and I. Let me just ask us, or else, what needs to be crushed in your life? What component of the will? What facet of pride? What wall that we've built? What needs to crush, be crushed rather, that we might be poured out, that finally that thing which God invested in us, which is most valuable and useful can come forth. One of the things that will come forth as we submit ourselves to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is a genuine heart of generosity. A genuine heart of generosity. And generosity, which is a wonderful representation of Christ in us, will affect the way that you approach everything. A heart of generosity will affect how you think of others. A heart of generosity will affect what you assume about others. A heart of generosity will affect how you forgive or don't forgive other people. And a genuine heart of generosity worked in us by the Lord, by the crushing work of the Holy Spirit, will yield a positive effect in ministry. Because as we spoke about last week, ministry is defined by service. And biblically speaking, in the mode of Jesus, ministry must be done with generosity. Ministry must be done with generosity. I want to finish with a passage from 2 Corinthians. Go there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, there's a context here that I want to note, but then I want us to really dwell on the principle and get beyond the context. The note is this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, for some time, for years actually, has been endeavoring to take a collection for the church that is in Jerusalem. From the Gentile churches out in Asia and Greece and other places, he's wanting to take a collection of money from them to give to the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is experiencing some difficulties. According to Acts chapter 6, they had a burden of widows, a lot of widows that they were ministering to, feeding, caring for the poor and for the abandoned. Also, we read in Acts chapter 11 that they were experiencing a famine in their time. And so very difficult times had come to Jerusalem in general and had come to the church. And so Paul is going to the Gentile churches that came from the mother church in Jerusalem and is looking for a collection to bring back to them to the ease, the burden of the people in Jerusalem. Now that's the broad context. I want us to move beyond that context and grab a hold of the principle. I'm not going to be talking now about giving money to the church. I'm simply talking about the principle of generosity in ministry, whatever your ministry is. Look at this principle slash promise given to us in verse six. Now I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Did you get that? That is a spiritual principle put in motion by God for God's people. Those who are stingy in their sowing will reap in the same way. Those who are generous in their sowing, in their giving, in their distributing, in their sharing, in their loving, and their extending will reap in the same way. Jesus said it like this, in the way that you measure to others, that's the same way it's going to be measured back to you. Whatever heart of generosity it is you have and you display toward others, that is the same way that you can expect generosity to be given back to you. He even said in the way that you forgive others, that's how you're going to be forgiven. This principle set in motion by God for God's people is from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Spoken about in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 11:25 25 says, the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. He who waters will himself be watered. The generous man is going to prosper. God will see to it. He'll see to it. And he who waters, he who gives out nourishment, refreshment, provision, will himself be nourished, provided for and refreshed. Again, Proverbs 19:17, "He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed." There is this concept in Scripture that must be realized by the Christian, that in the way that we give, it will be given back unto us. And the implication of Scripture is by the Lord. By the Lord, whether in greediness or in generosity, whether in material provision for others or in extending forgiveness, extending grace, releasing them from guilt, releasing them from burden. In the same way, it'll be measured unto us. How does that affect the way that you live? How does that approach the forgiveness issue for you? How does it approach others that you see in need that need to be ministered to? How, How does that change your approach? Look what he says in verse seven. Let each one do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And it says, let everybody do as is in his heart. Don't give out of obligation. Don't give out of guilt. Don't give out of some weird Christian peer pressure. Give if that's what is in your heart. But then the question that is begged is this. Are you a giver? It's pretty easy to recognize if somebody's a giver or a taker. Do you know what I'm talking about? And sometimes we vacillate. I feel like one day I'm a giver or one day I'm a taker. But it's pretty easy to tell if someone is a giver or a taker. What we need to ask ourselves is, am I a giver? Because we're to have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to be, according to Ephesians, imitators of God. And what do we know about God? God is a giver. For God so loved the world, He what? Gave His only begotten Son. God is a giver. And the very expression, the very manifestation, the very shattering of His love into this earth is giving. And so I think that generosity is a beautiful reflection reflection of the person of Jesus Christ in us. And even better, cheerful giving. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. It's not that he hates a person who's not a cheerful giver, but there's a special way in which he loves, communes with, extends to a cheerful giver. And so we need to ask that of ourselves. You see, generosity is beautiful, isn't it? You ever known anybody who's just generous? My mom is that way. She's not here right now. My mom is the most generous person I've ever met in my life, bar none. And you know what it's done to her? You know, you know what I've noticed? She's, I'm, I'm going to turn uh, 36 on February 29th of this month. So she's my mom, so she's pretty old then. That's what that means. That's <laughs> my you know what I've noticed about my mom and her aging? Is she is getting more and more beautiful all the time. You've seen my mom. You know what I'm talking about. She exudes a certain kind of beauty, which is Christ in her, causing her to have a generous heart. And this woman exudes beauty. No matter how she ages in years, there's an ever increasing beauty in her because generosity is beautiful, not in and of itself, but because it is a beautiful picture of God. Greed is ugly. It's really ugly. And it's destructive. Now, look what happens in the next few verses. This is mind-blowing. Pay attention. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Notice, God is able to give you everything that you need for anything that he calls you to, you're able to supply for it by what he supplied to you. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be, look at this, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. The principle that's being taught here is that God gives to us blessings in order that we might give to others. You will be enriched for all liberality. Liberality means giving with simplicity, without duplicity, without deceit, giving generously. God provides to us generously He's a kind father that we might give to others. Now, What we see here in this text is that Jerusalem was in need. And God is the God of Jerusalem. And God wanted to provide for the church in Jerusalem. But what we have represented here is a triangular relationship. Look at this. Here we have God, and we have Corinth, and we have Jerusalem. Now what needed to happen was Jerusalem needed some things from God. They couldn't supply for all of the demands of the poor and the widows. There's a famine in the land. Jerusalem was in need. But here's what God was going to do. God was going to give to Corinth and then expect Corinth to give to Jerusalem. God gave to Corinth that Corinth might give to Jerusalem. Why? Because throughout history, God chooses to work through people, not independent of people. This is the way that God works. And the result, follow, the result is given to us in the last part of verse 11, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Look in verse 12. For the ministry of the service is not only fully supporting the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Here's what happens. Jerusalem is in need. But because of how God works and what He wants to do, God blesses Corinth, calls them to give to Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem blesses God. It causes Jerusalem to praise the Lord. This is how God works. This is what He did in the feeding of the 5,000. In the feeding of the 5,000, we read this. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass... Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the multitudes. Notice the modi operandi of Jesus. He could have given the bread to the, to the multitudes himself. He provided for it. He took the loaf and the fish, but he multiplied it. And then in his wisdom... In his kindness, manifesting his call to partnership with us in mission, he gave it to the disciples who then gave it to the multitudes. This is how God works. He wants to bless the people around you. He wants to communicate who he is to them, but he chooses to do it through you. Now look at the blessing as it plays out in the life of the disciples. In the next verse of the feeding of the 5,000, it says... And they all ate, disciples and the multitude, they all ate and were satisfied. Everybody was satisfied, disciples and multitude, but look at this. And they, the disciples, picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. You see, the multitude got to eat and they were satisfied. The disciples also ate and were satisfied. But the ones who were involved in the serving won away with an extra blessing. And that is a blessing that so much of the church of Jesus Christ misses because they have confined themselves to being the multitude who comes and just says, I want, I need, give to me. But there are some who are disciples, conduits through which God blesses others, through which he provides. And those each went away with a big basket. They ate and they were satisfied. They went away with a multitude. Why? Why? because in the way that you sow, you will reap. In the way that you sow, you will reap. But it's all from God. All ministry is God's ministry. All ministry is by grace. It was God who multiplied the bread. It was God who gave it to the disciples. But when they in turn gave it to others, they reaped a bountiful harvest from it. That's Christianity. And anything less than that is not Christianity. We see the same thing in second Corinthians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that, so that, in order that, the Hina clause in Greek, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us that we might comfort others. God comforts us fully expecting that we will speak that into, extend that to as stewards of his grace in its various forms into the lives of others. That's real Christianity. That's the way that it's supposed to work. You see, but what we want is this. Look at this diagram. This is what we want. This is at least how we pray. This is for sure how we pray. We we care about the others and we want God to do something about it. God, just do something. God, just do it. Come on, hurry. This is more representative of who we are. This is not who we're supposed to be. This is not how we're supposed to pray. This is not Christianity. Christianity is involving ourselves in the mission of God. Accepting the invitation into the work that He is already doing. And you see, When we involve ourselves in the process, it's there that we discover God most potently because God is all about the process. God is all about the process. He's all about what happens in you when he gives to you and calls you to give to others. He is all about that process. But if in your prayers and in your living, you remove yourself from the process, well, if you miss the process, you miss God. He's all about the process. He's not a genie. It's not instant satisfaction, gratification, whatever. He's all about the process. And if you don't involve yourself in God's process of self-sacrificially ministering to others, then you miss God altogether in that dimension. In fact, the next verse is going to tell us that if we're not doing this, there's no real proof of our Christianity. It says in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 9, because of the proof, given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and uh, to them and to all. Notice the proof given by this ministry, God is going to be glorified. James said, you want to talk to me about faith? Let me see your works. Because genuine faith is always going to have an outflow of works. You cannot argue against that. Genuine faith will always have an outflow of works. And this was taken by the Apostle Paul to be proof of Christ in the church in Corinth. That they were willing to minister with generosity. Ministry with generosity. And and the result then is that it increases love and fellowship and prayer. Look in verse 14. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. I don't have time to go into it, but if you realize the cultural significance, the cultural and religious significance, that the church in Jerusalem was rejoicing over the church in Corinth. Corinth, Corinth, Corinth. Corinth was Las Vegas, New York City, San Francisco, perverted times ten, rolled into one. That's the city of Corinth. And the problem wasn't that the church was in Corinth. The problem was that the church was, the Corinth was in the church. That's the problem. But you see through the generosity and so the clear demonstration of their faith, we see that the church in Jerusalem would be rejoicing and praying for them. There comes an increase in prayer, in Christian love and in fellowship when we minister with generosity. We've experienced that as a church. There is an orphanage in Thailand. We have some people in Thailand right now. There's an orphanage in Thailand. We helped build the new building and on the doorway they have a sign that says "Carpenteria" in the upper left-hand corner. That's there in an orphanage in Thailand right now. The orphans are kids who've been rescued out of prostitution. And they're raised in the love and the discipleship of Jesus Christ. We helped to build that orphanage and now they've got a little sign that says carpenteria. Why? Not because they're giving the glory. I know these orphans, they're worshiping God. They're not giving the glory to Carpinteria, but there's a rejoicing that takes place. There's a brotherhood that takes place. There's a Christian unity and fellowship and love that never would have been there if you hadn't sacrificially given. Same thing with in Africa. a couple of years ago in Africa, there was a great famine, and so we fed this village. We fed the children in this village for a couple of months, and there they are, the African kids holding up a sign. This says, "Thank you reality." It's not that they're praising reality, but they, like the church in Jerusalem, was connected in love with the church in Corinth because of the love they showed. We are now connected to these kids in Thailand and in Africa because of self-sacrificial giving. That's Christianity. Amen. That's Christianity. That's the mission of God that he has called us into. And it's got to happen this way. He who waters will be watered himself. And all the glory goes to God. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Each one of you has a course that God has already set before you. The goal of the Christian life is to walk in it with our eyes open, sober, spiritually alert. That we might enter into partnership in God's mission. Let me just give you a clue to help you discover that course, those ministry opportunities. If it's real, authentic ministry given by God, it's going to cost you something. I don't believe that there's a true ministry that doesn't cost you anything. It's going to cost you something if it's a real ministerial opportunity from God. It might be time. It might be comfort. It might be reputation. It might be fiscal. But if it's ministry from God, it's going to cost you something. But it can't cost you if you don't already have it. And if you already have it, it's because God gave it. And if God gave it, it's to give to others. That's the way that it works and it doesn't work any other way. And so here's what I want you to do this week, point of application. I want you to prayerfully identify needs that are around you and self-sacrificially meet them. I want to talk to the home group leaders right now. I'm expecting our home groups this week to get together and prayerfully survey the needs of the community and begin to meet them self-sacrificially. What will be our testimony on that day when we go to meet the Lord? Fought the good fight finish the course kept the faith what will you do this week with the mission of god amen? amen lord thank you for your challenge and your beautiful invitation to step into your work lord help us lord as we confessed at the outset of this message we are generally a very selfish people and we need to be rattled out of complacency we are so concerned with how we feel with our dramas they're real but you're going to take care of those. You haven't called us to obsess over those. Called us to be poured out, really. So Holy Spirit, come with your love and do a crushing work in our lives of pride, arrogance, of deceit, of duplicity, of selfishness. Do a crushing work here, Lord. We want to be a humble people. We want to be a people who serve you in sincerity and truth. We want to be a people who have realized the full redemption of our daily activity to the glory of God for the furtherance of your kingdom to count for eternity. We want to be those people, so open our eyes. Thank you that it's right in front of us. It's where you have us right now. Open our eyes, Lord. Please remove the blinders of self and of sin. Bring us into your presence and bring us into your work, Lord. If you need help today, the prayer team is here. I want to invite you guys to be praying with one another. I really think that the Lord is issuing a special call into his mission on the individuals of this church. So grab somebody and pray. Do something about it. And let's humble ourselves before the Lord and come and get on our faces.